Thanksgiving, anything deep fried. Amen. That's just the way it goes. So. Heaven and hell is a topic, boy. You want to bring a screech to the conversation with your relatives this coming Thursday? Bring up this topic. But it does have a lot of great jokes. I think one of my favorite is the story of where Satan was tired of the fight, so he went up to St. Peter and said, Tell you what. Let's call a truce. You give me three of your top players, and we'll just quit fighting for a while. And Peter said, I don't know. And so he said, well, got to lose. So he said, all right. So he gave him Billy Graham and Joel Olstein and Robert Schuller. And so life was great for a long After about a month, Satan came walking up and said, the deal is off. And Peter said, why is that? And he goes, well, first of all, because of Billy Graham, everybody in hell believes. He's converted everybody. <laughs> Second of all, because of Joel Osteen, everybody is so positive, I can't take it anymore. And he said, well, what about Schuler?" He said, Schuler's the worst. He's raised so much money, he's air-conditioned the place. <laughs> I told that to Robert Schuler at a luncheon I was sitting by, and I asked if he ever heard that, and he said, yeah, he didn't laugh at all. It was just funny, but uh, great man, but... Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. It's a statement about the death of Henry VIII. Henry VIII and all of his power, this little, if you will, limerick came around because death comes for all of us. It's interesting in a poll, 79% of Americans say they believe in an actual heaven and they believe that they're going there. Only 29% believe in a literal hell and they don't know anybody personally they think that's going there. That's funny because I've been invited to go there all my life, you know. <laughs> But when you take a look at Americana and our culture, what does it believe about ultimate destinies? Our drama department has taken a few of the statements. This is the world you live in. Watch this. I don't believe in an afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. In heaven, all the interesting people are missing. There is no humor in heaven. says do what you wish you make the wrong choice and you'll be tortured for eternity in hell <laughs> that's not free will maybe this world is another planet's hell the only thing that makes life endurable in this world is human love and yet according to christianity that is the very thing we are not to have in the other world such a religion is a disgrace to human nature 
say with confidence that sexual abuse is more permanently damaging to children than threatening them with the eternal and unquenchable fires of hell. convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day and the invisible man has a special list of ten things he does not want you to do and if you do any of these ten things he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time but he loves you answer somebody like Carlin in saying, well, there's a statement that God is going to torture people, and yet that he says that he loves you. Do I believe in an actual heaven and an actual hell, or do I believe they are states of people right now? And the answer is, absolutely. I believe that the attitudes and the experiences now are either the suburbs of glory waiting for you, Jesus said, to whom much is given, even more will be given. Or it is the outskirts of the destiny of people that are removing. Now, I don't think you need to believe in a place of hell, Hades, Gehenna, whatever title you want to put to it, to be a Christian. I think you'd have kind of a weird faith if you didn't. But I want to, this morning, propose to you three reasons why I believe there is the great separation, the great divergence, the great separating of two different destinies. First of all, because of a biblical urgency... Second of all, a theological necessity. And third, a relational consistency. A biblical urgency. There is nowhere in this book that says it doesn't matter what you pick as long as you are sincere. doesn't say it. There's an urgency to it. Second of all, a theological necessity. How can you have this loving God and this holy God, a sovereign God, and you and I are totally free, without giving both options? And finally... A relational consistency. The two great acts of God, creation and redemption, come out of His loving heart. But the good news is this book is not about those that are lost. The good news is this relentless, loving, heavenly Father whose Son loves us so much that He picked up the bill for this on the cross, who wants to give... He's made this hole in His heart that only you and I can fill. And Christianity is not about just getting people into heaven when you die... It's about getting heaven into us now and having this God who walks with us and helps us along the whole way. And once you and I embrace not just the teleological, that's a fancy word meaning the end result of our life, but the anthropological and even psychological as far as the theology coming up, being saved is the life that we long for even in this incredibly broken world. And that's why for the last 2,000 years, People have given witness of what a faithful God He is. When I say that there's a biblical urgency to this, what do I mean by that? 
Catch your Bible. Turn with me back over to John, but to John, the fifth chapter. And starting in verse 25 on page 866 in your pew Bible. And Jesus wild claims. Nobody in the Bible spends more time talking about hell than Jesus of Nazareth. Thomas Jefferson said Jesus of Nazareth was the most sublime, loving life that ever lived. Unquote. No one really knows what Jefferson's theology was. But if somebody looked at Jesus of Nazareth, he said he was by far the most sublime, loving life. And you'd have to say that. What other person has been talking about loving and forgiving more than Christ? And yet he talks this way. He just healed a man on the Sabbath. He could have waited till Monday, and he didn't. He does it on Sunday morning. The Sabbath was yesterday. Verse 25. Very truly I tell you the hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given to Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this. For the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and will come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Well, Jesus is saying here that this concept of an urgency is because you and I are free. Now, a lot of people are not afraid of hell or afraid of Satan. Like the story of a little town was having a little revival, and all of a sudden... Satan wanted to scare the little church, so he appeared right there on the middle by the pulpit. And all the people went running out, screaming out of the little church, except for some old farmer sitting there in his bib coveralls, chewing on a straw. Satan said to him, don't you know who I am? And he went, yep. He said, aren't you afraid of me? And he went, nope. He went, why aren't you afraid of me? He said, been married to your sister for 32 years now. So, but anyway. I know I'll get emails on that one, but anyway. Where is this urgency? Absolute justice in the state you and I are in is pure hopelessness. If God is just, not nice, just, and you and I have done the things that you and I have done, His physical laws always work. Gravity doesn't work 90% of the time. It works all the time. If He is that perfect in the spiritual law, you and I have a hopelessness. But if you just have love with no justice, it's not love. It's saccharine sentimentality. When someone does wrong and evil that cries out within you or I, somebody needs to make this right. From the very beginning, now our Hindu and our Buddhist friends prayed with a woman after the last service, uh, married to a Jewish husband that came forward to give their lives to Christ. And when I was talking about our Hindu friends and Buddhists, there's no real personal heaven or hell because there's no real personal you. That you will someday be freed from this world of samsara, this illusionary stuff, and from a thousand million million rebirths, and you'll finally become one with Brahman, the essence of nirvana. But when I blow this candle out, it goes neither up or down, north or south, was a saying of Buddha. It goes out. So that you. And salvation to a Buddhist or to a Hindu is to lose existence. There's no idea of a concept of a place. By the way, she said, her, why she came for it, she said she longed that fear, which I'd never been told before from a Buddhist, of how many lives you're going to have to live over and over and over and over and over again to break this cycle. The concept of heaven and a shiol, a waiting place, is the great monotheistic face, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. 
And in the Bible, in Genesis, there's all this choice all the time. There's this urgency. God creates the Garden of Eden. He tells Adam and Eve, one tree, don't eat of it. The day you eat of it, you'll die. They eat of it. Moses says, I set before you death and life. Be smart. Choose life, not death. The psalm, Psalm 1, which sets up the whole 150 psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is upon the law of the Lord. The way of the wicked will perish, but the way of the righteous God will oversee. Choose. Jesus, the one who says, forgive your enemy, love him, turn the other cheek, says this. Enter in then through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and easy is the road that leads to destruction, and there are many who follow it. But narrow is the gate and hard is the way to lead to life, and there are few who find it. There's this urgency in the scriptures because life is so real and our choices are real to make the right choice. Now, what's interesting is modern Western secular society, modernity and post-modernity, the philosophy of the times, isn't about us adjusting to the universe. It's about getting the universe to adjust to our desires. The ancients, when something went wrong, they would say maybe it's a moral problem or a character problem, and things like courage and fidelity and faithfulness and sacrifice is how they would respond. Modern human experience is it's a syndrome. There's no sin anymore. There's just pathologies. And how can we manipulate the universe because we are the center of the universe, we think, for my desires to be fulfilled. You are raised in a whole unique experience in world history. Our science is brilliant, and I believe God-given. The philosophy that comes out of our science is way weak in thinking through the big issues of life. And so, do we believe in life after death? Yeah. Someone asked me, do I believe in life after death? I said, yes. The question is, do I believe in life on the 405? I have no idea about that. But I had a woman after a sermon... <laughs> months ago she was so mad there was so much steam coming off of her because i mentioned heaven and hell man she pressed my shirt just standing there and what she said was who do you think you are to be able to think that you are right and everybody else is wrong a loving god would never let anybody go to hell fascinating very western statement we take offense in the west of god holding any of us accountable for our decisions because we believe in democracy and God hits the big reset button at some time and we all start over because it's kind of a game in that sense. Not so in the East. Two years ago when we had a Muslim family, she gave her life to Christ and we baptized her down at the Santa Monica. I'll tell you, one of her biggest things coming to Christianity, you know what the hard thing was? Not the justice of God. This concept of Christians that God will just forgive. You see, you and I, because we live in such a bubble of a world, we do not have the atrocities of most of human experience take place in our life. Listen to what Mislav Volf, a Yale theologian, also a Croatian, who went through the Balkan Wars, who watched families literally rape before their eyes and then had them beheaded or killed and then put the eyes out, an old Assyrian trick of the people they were fighting the horde. This is what he says, quote, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, God would not be worthy of worship. 
But it takes the quietness of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. But what he's saying is, it takes you in a little suburban cul-de-sac to say, don't do violence because God would never do that. In a war-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with all the other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What he's saying is, if you saw your family raped and killed in front of your eyes, and this idea that God went, well, boys will be boys. That's insane. There must be an accounting. And if you take that further enough, those who refuse must at some point have an accountant take place. Well, we all believe that to a point, but the question is to what point? There's a theological necessity for justice and mercy to coincide, and they coincide at the place called eternity. Now, the idea that hell is just simply somebody who has made the bad choice, and it's like some guy down here at UCLA, he's doing parties, he's doing bongs, you know, he sleeps around a little bit, but he's not mean to anybody. And the idea that when he dies and stands before God, God goes, you had a chance, you blew it, now burn in hell forever, is not the biblical understanding. What is going on in that young man's heart is the question. It's not what he believes, it's what he rejects. And at some point, would he ever bend the knee or not? Jesus has a great example of this. Turn with me over to Luke, the 16th chapter. It's on page 851 in your pew Bible. That not only is there a biblical urgency, but there's a theological necessity for God to integrate justice and mercy, His sovereignty and our freedom. Now, on uh, page 851, verse 19... This is a tough story of Jesus. It, that's why your version, if you're watching online, it might have a parable, but it doesn't say a parable because this guy has a name. No other parable has a name in it. Well, let's let Jesus talk. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Pause. Why purple? We're getting ready to go into Advent. Purple was the most expensive dye in the ancient world. It came from a really hard-to-find shellfish or sometimes another dye. That's why purple for Advent or Lent, speaking of the king. Purple means this was stuff right off of Rodeo Drive. And he's eaten a lot. Verse 20. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Pause. Now, what's horrible, this guy's life, he's a Jew, and to have dogs licking him all the time, he was ceremonial unclean as well as the misery he's at. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his head. Pause. Notice he didn't have a name. You see what Jesus is saying. His identity, he's given up his identity for wealth. All he is is a rich man. Lazarus and his agony is still an individual and he's with Abraham. So this rich guy dies and he looks up. 24. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. And now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. So that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can come across there to us. He said, then Father, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. 
Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. One, when you die, you don't change. Death does not change you or me. It fixes us. It fixes us in the direction we are going. Notice that the rich man is still, even in hell, ordering Lazarus around like he's a servant. Send him here. And Abraham says, no, we can't go from there to there or you to here. Now, is Jesus really building a place of a three-tiered heaven and hell and under the earth? I, I think you're missing the point of the story there. The point he's saying is, when you die, who you are follows you. It really does. And if you have the good virus called being born again, as he said to Nicodemus, that follows you. If you have the bad virus, it just follows you all the way. And it's so hard for Christians, for pastors like me, to be able to explain the wonder and the goodness of walking with Christ because so many Christians are so flaky. Oh my goodness. And so many pastors are so obnoxious. You kind of go, you're going to heaven? I pick hell. I'm just going away from you. Like the pastor and the cab driver died. They stood before the great pearly gates. They got there and the cab driver, St. Peter said, here's a wonderful mansion. He goes, great. He said to the pastor, he said, here's your pup tent. He goes, I don't get this. Peter said, you don't get it. You don't understand. When you preached, people slept. When he drove, people prayed. How do you wake people up to be able to say this is not just a game and this is not a fire and brimstone message. This is a fire about a sermon about God's love. Is it a place of punishment? Yeah, somehow it's writing. By the way, if you believe in a God of love, you know where you got that? The Bible. Period. Do you think nature taught you that? Have you watched what the biosphere does with the weak and the old? How they are called breakfasts for any other animal? Do you think history has taught you people are fair and loving? When the Assyrians came and they played a game of 50-50, when they took the children of Israel and the pregnant women and slipped them open to see whether the child inside was a boy or a girl, do you think history teaches you it's nice? You believe in a God of love, it's a borrowed from the Bible. And so our tough thing is saying, well, how do we have this God of love and integrate this? Some people maybe think that hell is annihilation. You know, the idea of fire, the fire and brimstone lake in Revelation and Jesus saying, throw into the fire. If you take a wood and burn it, it becomes just kind of a coal. Maybe at some point people are gone out of existence. Might be. Bible doesn't hint about that. Dante, remember, the, in his outer rings of hell in the Inferno, the Divine Comedy, you know, different rings of hell. In July, the San Fernando Valley is the fourth ring of Dante's hell. As but the very bottom, remember what it was? Frozen. Away from the light of God. And what he's saying is the more you drift from God, the more you collapse in on yourself like a dark hole, a black hole, a dark star, further and further and further. Some people mean kind of a universalism. All dogs go to heaven. God is so good that at some point he'll say, I overcome it. Would God forgive anybody in hell? I believe that Aquinas, the great teacher of the church, as well as Calvin later quoting Aquinas, said, quote, the reprobate have nothing within themselves to desire the life of the elect. 
Lewis said it this way. There's nothing in heaven that anybody in hell would want. What happens if we so collapse in on ourselves? I just want me, I just want me, I just want me, that forever and ever. Would God forgive? Of course, but they won't be forgiven. As I said, the door to hell is locked from the inside, not the outside. And so God, not only in His great justice and His mercy, but it's about His love. There's a reason that these... The longings of one of our kids over here, children in our student ministry, boy, they have dreams, they want life to be great. There's a reason our older man sitting over here in one of the, our 9 o'clock service, he's sitting thinking, why couldn't a life in the... There's a reason that our youth are working so hard to build utopia and a just and a good world. Do you know why? It's the echoes of how God created the world and sent it and into it, but God is not going to leave it there. This is the story of God's power. I think a lot of the protesters that occupy Wall Street are serious, thinking, legitimate people. Notice what it's degenerated into? Petty crime, selfishness, and disease. The human experience you're seeing right before your eyes. Good intention, good ideas, and all of a sudden, who takes over? Compared to, I think, of my older brother. He hated the things of God when my father left the family as a minister and ran with a church secretary. And Dan, man, he hung around a saltier crowd than I did. They were, they were mean boys, mean hombres. And when I gave my life to Christ and I shared Christ with him, I, he, first time I did that, he said, you ever bring that blank up again, I'm going to knock your teeth down your throat. And since he was 6'3", I prayed about it before I brought it up again. And I had a dream that one day he would let me pray with him. And then he contracted leukemia, and as he was dying, he said, it's not fair. I can't give my, life to God, give my life to God now. And I said, Dan, it's not about fairness. It's about love. And not only did he give his life to Christ, but he began sharing on the war before he died the good news of Christ. And he had this new life, my old brother Dan, coming back as his body was dying. That's what giving your life to Christ means. Remember the last time you had the flu and you felt like, I've never felt good in my life. And then one day you started to feel a little bit better. And if you're still hurting, but you're feeling better, life's returning. That's the Christian life. You still got the aches of this fallen world. There's still injustices and horrible things out there. But there's a new life that's growing inside of you that is literally unstoppable. How could I go to heaven if my loved one was not there? There's a question I get asked all the time. I'll tell you how. Because what you love in your loved one won't be there anymore. When Eichmann, who tortured by his own hand thousands of Jews to their death in the death camps, and was one of the great masterminds of that, when one of the witnesses saw him come walking into Nuremberg to be tried, he all of a sudden... And Victor Franco fell against the wall when Eichmann walked in. And they said, why? Did you bring him back the horrors of the death camp? And he said, no. He was such a kind-looking man. This monster. When Carolyn was working at the VA hospital down here in the late 70s, it's down in Sepulveda, with the institutionalized schizophrenics, some of the sociopaths in there, they were the most gregarious personalities that you could talk with out there. And they, these are also the men that murdered people by the dozens. Talk to you, be nice, slit your throat, and not even care. You and I, Jesus said, don't judge. You don't know their hearts, I do. 
And so the concept that I could I be there, we don't understand that we understand justice and God's love. And the other question is, well, well, why in the world doesn't everybody give their life to Christ? And I got to say, I don't get it. Somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit speaks. And you can't come to Christ anytime you want. Remember when he told the Jews, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they went gag? He said, in John 6, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. The flesh is of no avail. You can't figure this out on your own. But when the Father draws, you respond. There are times when God stops the river and says, are you going to come? He won't force you. He just calls. You know, when you get a bacterial infection, you think I'm just going to muscle this one out? No, you're not. You don't get the meds. You're going down. I don't care how sincere you are. You buy a bad stock and you want it to get better. It's not going to get better just because you want it that way. When we come, we take a look at it and I need to get off of the booze until you get into rehab and get some help or that drug. You're not going to get better. And spiritually, until you say, oh, Lord, I need your help. When you do that, he opens up the floodgates of heaven. I'm going to ask you to do something this morning that's not really Presbyterian, but it's very biblical. I want to give you a chance to be able to say, I want to get right with the Lord. If you have never given your heart to Christ, this would be an opportunity. Not a big emotional thing. What other chance would you have to be able to have a room full of people like this cheering you on, praying for you, saying, yes, do that. If God used to be someone who was close to you and it's just become a philosophy now, and you say, I need to get my coordinates of my heart back on track. Those of you that have tended here, you know I don't do this a lot, but I tell you, that has been being impressed on me the last couple of weeks. I need to do this. Maybe this rain wasn't just for the farmers. Maybe this rain swept you in here. I don't know. All I know is that when I said to Christ, would you take me after the things I had done when I knew better and that he did? And when I think that when God loves me as much right now as when the first time I said, Christ, change my life. I wish I could just give it to you, but you've got to respond. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him would never perish, but have everlasting life. This is not about because someday you're going to die. It's because you're going to get up tomorrow and the day after and the day after. And you need somebody that can take you by the hand. Somebody... They can give you strength and wisdom and peace. Somebody that can change your life forever. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, that you could love somebody like me. And that, God, we can never out your love and your grace. I thank you, God, that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come home to you. God, I pray that right now, that you would right now, O Holy Spirit, do what you do best, and that is save the people that you love. If you've been aware of another voice besides mine that's been tugging at your heart, you may know the story forward and back, but you're just sitting back going, I'm going to wait to see how this plays out. 
not a good idea. I don't have a great need for anybody to come forward, but I do have a need. I believe the Lord is calling on someone to say, I need to get right with Christ. In a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to sing a song. I want you just to come down and stand with me. And we'll have a little prayer afterwards. There's nothing magical about walking down an aisle. It's a statement of faith of saying, God, I want you in my life. Come now, Lord Jesus. Come and put your big, strong arms around all those you have called and set aside. Do this, Lord. For your glory we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. And if you would like to commit your life to Christ or recommit it, you come down and stand with me and we'll have a little prayer together.